I'd like to start this morning by going to the Lord in prayer, asking for his help as we look at this passage of scripture. Let's pray together. God, we want to thank you this morning for the privilege of gathering together to worship you, to look at your word, to study it, to understand who you are and what you'd have called us to. And we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that just as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, thank you that your word does the same thing, that it comes out from your mouth and it does not return empty, but it will accomplish the purpose that you purposed and it will succeed in the thing for which you sent it. And this morning, we want to pray that you would accomplish that purpose in our hearts through your word this morning. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, I am uh, happy to report that I have found no eggs or $1 bills in uh, laying around the house anywhere. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you'll just have to go back and listen to the sermon from October 22nd. But uh, I found none. So either that means that uh, my preaching has been okay, or it means that Shannon is uh, hiding very well. Um, or maybe she has some other, we don't have chickens, so maybe she has some other way of monetizing my poor preaching. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> but this morning, this morning we are, uh, we're going to close out the second of three main sections in the book of Mark. There's kind of three main sections in the book of Mark. You've got chapters 1 through 8, and in chapters 1 through 8, you find Jesus in Galilee. He's kind of around Galilee, and you find him mostly ministering um, around Galilee, performing miracles, demonstrating by teaching and healing some of what he came to do. And then the third section in chapters 11 through 16, we find Jesus in Jerusalem. So first Galilee, then Jerusalem, and we find him in, in Jerusalem Uh, He's confronted by hypocritical religious teachers. He's being falsely accused. He's being betrayed and ultimately killed, but then he's raised back to life. But this second section, Mark 8 through 10, we find Jesus on the way from Galilee to Jerusalem. And Mark uses this idea of Jesus on the road to Jerusalem as a chance to describe what Jesus taught about discipleship. What does it look like to be a follower of Christ? And we've already looked at many of these teachings, like compassion for children, prioritizing Jesus over riches, and honoring marriage. And today, we're going to find him on his last stop before he gets to Jerusalem. And I think this is an especially appropriate passage to sort of kick off the Christmas season. Uh, During Christmas season, we celebrate that Jesus came. But here in Mark 10, Jesus is going to describe why he came. And so it's an appropriate passage to kind of start off the Christmas season. We'll see that in just a few minutes here. But for now, I'd like us to kind of set the scene uh, by starting in verse 32. I'd like to read that just a few, uh, there's verse 32 here again. So let's look at verse 32. Mark says this, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. So you can picture this. Jesus, his disciples, and a crowd, 
are pictured here walking together towards Jerusalem. So it was a The Passover time was coming. It was almost Passover, and so there are many people that are accompanying Jesus as he's walking to Jerusalem. They're ready to celebrate the Passover there in Jerusalem. But Mark makes it a point to say that Jesus was walking ahead of them. He's not lagging behind, obstinately making his way to the cross. This is why he came, and so he is leading the way. And this is why his disciples are amazed and the crowd is just afraid. <laughs> because Jesus has been teaching countercultural things since Mark chapter 8. He's explained to the, to the disciples, he just explained to them that he is going to go die in Jerusalem. So why would he be leading the way to his death? They're bewildered. They don't, they don't get it. They just don't get it. I mean, this is the third time that Jesus has explained that he was going to die. And this is the most detailed account of, of what Jesus explained that he was, was going to happen. I mean, he, he's going to be mocked. He's going to be spit on. He's going to be whipped severely. And he's going to be killed. But as usual, he teaches that he will not, that will not be the end. He will rise from the dead. And the disciples, they just don't get it. They don't get it. And in fact, that's what Jesus has been working on since Mark chapter 8. He's been trying to open their eyes. In fact, uh, Mark intentionally bookends this section, the very beginning of, Mark ch- uh, of, of the section and kind of halfway through Mark 8, and right here at the end of Mark chapter 10, he bookends the section with two healings of blind people. So first, back in Mark 8, there was this guy, do you remember this? Uh, Jesus kind of made some mud and he spit, spit on it and he put his hands onto the guy's eyes and... Um, it was kind of, he, this guy was kind of healed in stages. Like so the first time Jesus did that, uh, this guy said, uh, well, I can kind of see, but uh, people look like trees walking around. And then Jesus does it again, and then, and then he can see. And then here in Mark chapter 10, we've got another blind guy. His name is Bartimaeus, and Jesus heals him too. And this is Mark's way of illustrating for us how Jesus was working to slowly open the eyes of his disciples. Because this whole time, the disciples, like, they just don't get it. They're not seeing. And so Jesus, just like he did for the first, for the first guy, he's, he's gradually healing their blindness so that they can understand who he is and what it looks like to follow him. And so this morning, I think we find an interesting theme of blindness and vision. I think what we find in this text here are blind disciples, a blind beggar, and a vision for discipleship. Blind disciples, a blind beggar, and a vision for discipleship. So let's look first there at the blind disciples. And their blindness here, it's not physical blindness like Bartimaeus. Their blindness is spiritual blindness. And I think it's pretty obvious in the request here of James and John. Like, do you ever, do you ever, feel, like, um, do you ever feel like people are just zoning out on you while you're talking to them? You're like, yeah, I'm kind of zoning out on you right now. Can you make it interesting? No. <laughs> um, husbands are like notorious for this, right? Uh, no amens over there. And, uh, and kids too. Kids do the same thing. Kids have just this unbelievable ability to have selective hearing, don't they? Like, what? No, I didn't hear you tell me to go clean my room. I just didn't hear that. Sorry, mom, dad, I didn't hear it. But then you're sitting in the car and you're talking about one of the kids and from the very back seat, the young satellite antenna 
transmits every last syllable perfectly. <laughs> and you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> I thought you couldn't hear me. <laughs> uh, but this would, this would precisely describe James and John. I mean, look at their question. You, you look at their question here and you ask yourself, how could you possibly ask this question right after Jesus just said what he said? I mean, like, let, let's read verses 33 to 37 again, because I want you to catch, just again, I want you to feel the proximity between, the, between what Jesus says and what James and John ask. So verse 33, Jesus is saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and asked him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. (laughs) Like, are you kidding me? I mean, did you not just hear what Jesus said? And it's like, it's like they only per- heard the parts of Jesus' teaching that they wanted to hear. I mean, so what is the request? What is it that they're asking Jesus? What do they want? So in their culture, it was typical for an important teacher or maybe a ruler to have somebody who always stood to their right hand and somebody who always stood to their left hand. And the right hand guy was kind of like the second most important, second in command after the ruler. So the right-hand guy was the second most important, and the left-hand guy was the third most important. And when they're talking about Jesus' glory, they're referring to the time of Jesus' exaltation when all things would be put under his feet. So at least they understand, and they're acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah. But they radically misunderstand what kind of Messiah Jesus is. I mean, James and John think that Jesus is going, I mean, they're going to Jerusalem here, the capital city. And so James and John think that Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem, he's going to oust Rome, and he's going to set up his rule, and he's somehow going to become the supreme ruler all of a sudden. But apparently, what Jesus said about being delivered over to the Gentiles, mocked, spit on, whipped, and killed, went in one ear and out the other. (laughs) They completely missed it. And Jesus understands that they completely missed it. And so he graciously asks them a question. I I mean, sometimes when you read through the Gospels, aren't you just amazed at the grace of Jesus and his ridiculously slow disciples? (laughs) I I mean, look how kindly he responds to them. What do you want me to do for you? I mean, and, and then they give him this, they're like, okay, I want you to do this. And then he says this. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And in case we missed it, the obvious answer to that question is no. (laughs) They are not able to do that. I mean, what Jesus is talking about here, the cup that Jesus is talking about. In the Old Testament, the idea of the cup was often used as a metaphor for the wrath of God. That's swirling around, being ready to be poured out. So it's a metaphor. And the baptism that Jesus is referring to is also a metaphor for being 
uh, submerged, being plunged into some calamitous circumstance, some kind of suffering. But Jesus is going to explain that in verse 45 that his cup and his baptism were not just judgment and suffering. It was judgment and suffering as a substitute for sinful humanity. And this was something that James and John simply could not do because they are part of sinful humanity. And so the obvious answer to Jesus' question is no, they're not able. But you've got these sons of thunder, as they're referred to in the Gospels. And, uh, and they're very self-confident. And they reply, yes, we are able. <laughs> um, you're like, what? And so Jesus here turns the tables. He says, you're not going to drink Uh, they're not going to drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism that Jesus would in the same way as Jesus. But they would still suffer. Their suffering would not be to pay for the sins of humanity, but they would suffer for the one who did make that payment. And Jesus' prediction comes true. In Acts chapter 12, Herod beheads James. And the testimony of the early church tells us that John was exiled on the island of Patmos for his faith in Christ. And so they did suffer. In some way, they did drink the cup. They did what they were baptized with the baptism. But here we have two of Jesus' disciples acting in blatant pride and arrogance. You think about, you know, Peter, the foremost disciple, he had just been rebuked by Jesus. And so now James and John are like, ooh, this is our turn. Now maybe we can take the spot. (laughs) But it wasn't just James and John. I mean, they wanted their chance to achieve greatness, but it wasn't just James and John that were so callous and self-centered in the face of Jesus' humility. I mean, look at verse 41. Verse 41, And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. They were mad. <laughs> and why were they indignant? I mean, was it because they couldn't believe how brazen James and John were after what Jesus had said? And were, they wor- re- were they really worried about Jesus here? Probably not. That's not how Mark tends to portray the disciples in his gospel account. More likely, they are mad that James and John beat them to the punch. <laughs> and I think what we can learn from this is that pride takes many forms. I mean, for James and John, it was brazen and obvious. But for the other ten, it was hidden and more subtle. And this is probably true for us, too. For some of us, some people, our pride is so obvious to everyone around us. I mean, like, they open their their mouth and somebody, you know, somebody starts talking about how amazing they are. And you're just thinking to yourself, are you saying this out loud? (laughs) Some people are just really obvious in their pride. But most of us, kind of like, There were more people, you know, there were 10 that were a little bit more subtle. Most of us are really sophisticated in our pride. I mean, we would never just come out and just say how awesome we are. But we're really good at making people think that we're awesome (laughs) without saying it. In fact, sometimes we even, you know, we're we're even proud about how lowly we talk about ourselves, right? I mean, see how how humble I am? (laughs) Uh, I missed it. (laughs) I mean, it looks like humility, but it's pride. I mean, one guy commented on, or commented on this passage, and he said, how easily worship and discipleship 
are blended with self-interest. Or worse, self-interest is masked as worship and discipleship. And I think what Mark intends for us here is not to point our noses up at James and John and think how, how terrible and how selfish and how proud they are. Instead, I think what Mark intends is for James and John to be a mirror for us where we see our own pride and self-interest. Because this is the nature of sinful humanity. This is what it's like. This is, this is how humans are without Jesus. We're proud. And I think that's the point that Jesus makes in the, in the few verses here. Look at verse 42. It says, And Jesus called them to him, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, not, not just that they exercise authority, but they, they make it a point. I mean, they, they rub it in. They make it clear that they are the boss and everyone else is not. I mean, in our culture, the overwhelming view is that greatness comes through pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and making a name for yourself, right? I mean, if you want the promotion, you have to flaunt your skills and make your coworkers look bad. I mean, if you want to hold the office, you have to emphasize your humility and sacrifice. If you want to be the popular teen, you have to verbally put down everyone else. To be great, you have to rise to the top. And to the rise to the top, you have to put everyone else under your feet. And I think this is probably uh, most obvious in our culture. When you look at uh, uh, like presidential candidates and their, and their commercials, right? I mean, don't you see this? I mean, like, don't you just get sick of these? I, I mean, I don't even care what party you're in. Like, I just get sick of these commercials because it seems like the only thing they ever present is how awful, how corrupt, how dishonest, and how short-sighted the other candidate is. And isn't it fascinating how they do this too? It's like, um, they, you know, as you're watching this commercial, it's like black and white. As if the other candidate represents sin and everything bad in the world. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, when they talk about themselves, it's now full, vibrant color. And the picture is like, I am the savior of the world. <laughs> you're like, no, you're not. <laughs> but this is what it looks like. This is what our culture looks like. This is what the disciples were like. And I think if we're honest, this is what we are like. I mean, they, these disciples may have been able to see physically, but spiritually, they were blind as a bat. But I really love how Mark includes the next story right on the heels of this story at the, uh, towards the end of Mark 10. The disciples were blind, but next notice, a blind beggar. And unlike the disciples, Bartimaeus was blind physically. And unlike the disciples, Bartimaeus was keenly aware of his desperate situation. Now, there's so much in this story that we could talk about. Uh, but for the sake of time, I want to direct your attention to just a few details uh, that, from this text here. So Jesus came to, it says in verse 46, he came to and now he's leaving Jericho. And this is his last stop before Jerusalem. He's, he, now he's headed towards Jerusalem. There's nothing that we're going to see him do uh, after this until he gets to Jerusalem. Um, and Jesus is intentional. I mean, we looked at verse 32 to 34. He is intentional. He's walking with pace and intentionality as he's going to the cross. 
But even though he walks with pace and intentionality, he always has time for people in need. Can Can I just say that again? Jesus always has time for people in need. And you may find yourself in desperate need. And Jesus is never too busy for you. Bartimaeus is the outcast. I mean, ju- just like the disciples, remember just a couple chapters ago, like the, or maybe this chapter, uh, the disciples disparaged the children. No, don't come to Jesus. He doesn't have time for you. In the same way, the crowd silences Bartimaeus. No, you have to be a somebody if you want to get his attention. You have to be awesome. <laughs> but I love how Bartimaeus responds. Don't you just love this? <laughs> Look at verse 48. Verse 48, it says, And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. <laughs> and so he obeyed. He, he calmed himself down. And he didn't say anything. No. <laughs> but he cried out all the more, Son of David! That's a messianic term. Have mercy on me! <laughs> he doesn't quiet down. He gets louder. And then look at, uh, let's see, look at verse, verse 50. When Jesus actually calls him. Uh, What does he do? Verse 50, and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. When people are desperate for Jesus, they hurdle any obstacle. I mean, it's like my dog Archie when he sees my parents. He jumps over anything and everyone to get to them. And he is deaf to our commands of domestication. (laughs) And when people are desperate for Jesus, when they see their need for Jesus, they don't care what anyone else says. They ignore commands of domestication and they run to Jesus whatever it takes. Can I just say this with love? Some of us might not be desperate enough for Jesus. We might not be desperate enough It could be that you've heard Bible truths, you know bits of the gospel, but are you desperate? I mean, have you come to realize that if Jesus doesn't rescue you from your sin, you are absolutely hopeless for all eternity? That's sobering. That's desperate. So let your desperate situation drive you to the one who can rescue you. Then I want you to notice a very important question that Jesus asks Bartimaeus when Bartimaeus finally makes it to him. Look at verse 51. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Now, you may have noticed that that is the exact same question that Jesus asked James and John earlier in Mark 10. Exact same question. But if you stop and think, when we, get to, when we get to this question to Bartimaeus, I mean, when you stop to think, it seems like a really strange question to ask a blind man. Like, isn't this a no-duh answer? I mean, he's blind. What do you think he wants you to do for him? But Jesus isn't asking this question because he's ignorant. Jesus asks the question, not for his own sake, But he asked the question for Bartimaeus' sake. He asked it for James and John's sake. 
And I would suggest that this is an important and revealing question for you and me also. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Because not everyone wants to be rescued. Not really. Sure, we want to be out of our pain. Sure, we want relief. But not everyone wants to be rescued by Jesus. And here's why. Uh, Jesus is going to explain, we're going to look at this in a second, but he's going to explain in verse 45 that he came to give his life as a ransom. That means he gave his life as a payment for you. And if Jesus paid for you, then Jesus owns you. He is your Lord. He is your master. And not everyone wants Jesus to be Lord. And so not everyone wants to be rescued by Jesus. And so I think we should ask this question again. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Bartimaeus wanted rescue. And rescue is exactly what he got. And he was delivered. He was healed. Uh, Pastor Wood mentioned this last week, last Sunday, when we looked at Luke 17. Um, in, in verse 52 of Mark 10 here, uh, Jesus, says, uh, Jesus says to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. That word well there, he's healed you. That word well is the same word for saved or rescued. And when Jesus uses this word in the, in, in the Gospels, when he's healing somebody, it almost always means both physical healing and spiritual healing. I mean, Bartimaeus became a follower of Jesus. He was saved. And I think it's evident from the text. I mean, I think it's interesting. This is the only healing in the Gospel of Mark where the person who is healed is named. Nowhere else do we, kind, do we catch the guy's name or the girl's name. And some commentators believe that that is because Bartimaeus was actually known in the church that Mark wrote this gospel account to. So he named him. But either way, I think it's also uh, evident from the way that Mark describes Bartimaeus before and after. This is a little bit subtle, but I think it's intentional. Okay, look at verse 46. Look how he describes Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. He's sitting by the roadside. But then look in verse 52. Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight. And then what did he do? And followed him on the way. That word there, on the way, is the exact same word in verse 46, roadside. They're the exact same word. Jesus takes, this is Mark's picture of discipleship. Following Jesus on the road. And so Jesus takes this outcast on the side of the road who doesn't yet believe in him completely. He saves him. He heals him. And he turns him into somebody who follows him on the road. And here's the point. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to rescue people and transform them. There's only a few times in the gospel accounts 
where Jesus clearly states his mission statement, why he came. And Mark 10, 45 is probably the most prominent of all of them. Look at verse, look at verse 45 here. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I mean, Jesus, the creator of the universe, came to his own creation, not to be served by his creation, though that would have been entirely appropriate. No, he came to serve his creation. And he came to give his own life for his creation. No one forced him to do this. He did this willingly. He gave up willingly his life as a ransom, as a payment. The sin of humanity deserves the wrath of an almighty God. That is the just payment for our sin. But Jesus came to this earth, as we're going to begin to celebrate this next month, for the purpose of giving his own life as a penalty for our sin. What grace, what humility, what great kindness to us, even though we are so intensely undeserving. I mean, like James and John, we are constantly consumed with ourselves, but yet even still, Jesus self-sacrificially gives his life up for us. This is amazing grace. And this is why it is absolutely worth it to follow Jesus. Some people don't want to follow Jesus. They don't, want, they don't want Jesus to rescue them because they don't want Jesus to be their master. But it's because they completely misunderstand who Jesus is. Jesus is a good master who serves his children and gives up his life for them. Praise be to Jesus for his rescuing work for us on the cross. So in our study this morning, we find some blind disciples. We find a blind beggar. But if we finished right now, we would miss the main point of this passage of Scripture. Because Jesus rescues people where they are. He will meet you wherever you are. He met Bartimaeus on the roadside. He's met a whole bunch of others in other places. He will meet you wherever you are. But when Jesus rescues you, you don't stay the same. You never stay the same. He, trans- he transforms you into something completely counter to sinful culture. And we've already seen this in Mark 10. In the kingdom of Jesus, values are turned on their head in comparison to sinful culture and their selfish kingdom. I mean, in Jesus' kingdom, people pray desperately. They believe like children. They take sin seriously. They honor marriage as permanent. They understand pe- possessions as temporary. And there's one more reversal that Jesus teaches before he gets to Jerusalem. So notice finally a vision for discipleship. What does it look like to follow Jesus? But if this is the kind of master Jesus is, one who serves and gives, then those who follow him should be characterized in the same way. The Lord of creation, the Lord of the universe, the creator, came not to be served, but to serve and to give. And I think here's what we find. When people find rescue in Jesus, they follow him in the way of humble servanthood. Uh, Look at verse 43. It says there, 
but it shall not be so among you. He's explained with the rulers of the Gentiles. This is what they do. It shall not be so among you. Now, in the original language, that, that shall is actually not future. It looks like future in the ESV and the New King James. But the uh, New American Standard and the NIV have a better translation of this verse. Jesus doesn't say it should not be so, like, like don't let it in the future. He says it is not so among you. And that's because when people find rescue in Jesus, they follow him in the way of some humble servanthood. That's just what people do who follow Jesus. I mean, look at the rest of verse 43. But whoever would be great among you will be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. I mean, true greatness is not found in stamping out the competition. True greatness is found in seeking out the competition and serving them. The word servant there, it's the same word for deacon, diakonos, one of the offices in our church. And I just want to say, as a pastor, I am so thankful for the deacons in our church. Those who willingly and faithfully and sacrificially serve us. We are truly blessed here to have such faithful servants. But the other word, uh, the other word Jesus uses is slave. And this word is fascinating. Because a slave is someone whose actions and attitudes by nature are directed not to their own interests, but to the interests of somebody else. It's just what it means to be a slave. And this is one of the characteristics of the Christian community. And it should stand out more than many, like, I mean, this should be one of the most prominent characteristics that stands out. Oh, you're a Christian. You must be a Christian because you just, you just love people and you serve. Christians should be the quickest to serve. Christians should be the quietest servants. Not making a bold proclamation about all the good stuff that I'm doing, but just quietly and simply serving. Followers of Christ, more than anyone else in our culture, should be known for seeking and prioritizing other people's needs above our own. And so does servanthood characterize your life? Could it be said of you that it is so obvious that you are a genuine follower of Christ because of the way that you serve those around you? That's a convicting question. So let me give some little application here. Husbands, do you serve your wives? Your wife, singular. Do you serve your wife and truly hold their interests above your own in the home? <laughs> and would your wife agree with your response? <laughs> Think about it. Uh, pastors, there are a few of us here in the room. And I ask this question more to myself than anyone else. But do you lay down your, your desires and your agendas in order to faithfully serve the needs of the people? Or are you seeking to parade your skills and abilities and expertise and theological knowledge in a way that champions yourself and portrays yourself as the Savior? That was a convicting question. Church members, in seeking to serve in the church, 
do you vie for the prominent roles and refuse to work in the nursery? No, I'm just kidding. That's, that's no. <laughs> that's a cheap shot. That's not fair. That's, I, I promise that's a joke. <clears throat> uh, but do you vie for the prominent roles and exclude others? Or do you, do you view your area of service truly as an opportunity to serve people? both the people benefiting from that ministry and the people that you're serving alongside. Everyone should serve somehow in the church. And so let me challenge you. If you don't have a way yet that you are serving the church in some way, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. So find some way to use your gifts, whatever God has given you, to serve in the church. Uh, Teens and kids, do you seek to serve your siblings? (laughs) What? (laughs) I will serve anyone but them. (laughs) No, don't forget, the king of the universe did not consider himself too great to serve a blind beggar. So are you willing to serve your siblings and consider their own interests before your own? And we could go on and on with different roles. And you could try to think through all the people that you interact with in your life on a regular basis. And are you serving them? But I I, want to give two more. Because I think these these two are also important. You know, some in the room, some of us might be more prone to lazy inactivity. And it might be that as we look at a passage like this, what we need to take away from this is to actually get off our fanny and actually serve people and do action. Like put, to, put ourselves to action and serve. It might be, it might be that we need to uh, apply this by actually act, by acting, by, by doing activity and serving. Uh, some, some of us might be more prone to constant activity. We're constantly doing, 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 and serving, and serving, and serving. But just because I'm doing activity doesn't mean that I'm serving like Jesus. Because the question is, where is your heart? And I think this starts to come out in different ways. Like like when we're asked to do a job that we really don't want to do. Then my serving, even though I'm prone to like serving a lot and lots of activity, then my real heart begins to come out. Or when I'm serving and no one ever says thank you, no one seems to notice that I'm serving. All of a sudden that brings out what was in my heart. Or when somebody calls you out on something, totally unrelated, they call you out, either they accuse you or they confront you on something, And all of a sudden, you have this long list of merits that you've been keeping track of, that you have been doing, all these things, all these serving things that you've been doing, and you spill it all out. And then you start to spill out, you air out all their dirty laundry. You know the person who confronted you, you start to air out all their dirty laundry, but you did this and this and this and this. You know what that's revealing? I'm not not serving Jesus. I'm manipulating. I'm doing activity so that I get what I want. That's not serving. But Christians serve even from the heart. And then one last area of application. You know, one of the chief ways that serving is expressed is in giving. 
That's what it says in, in verse 45. The Son of Man came not to serve, but, or not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. One of the chief ways of serving is expressed in giving. I mean, this can be like giving your time to somebody. This could be uh, giving your knowledge to somebody, your, your expertise in a specific area. This could be also financially giving to somebody, a person in need, to, to the church and the ministry of the church so that the gospel can go out in this church. I mean, I think, I think you all have been around long enough to understand that Pastor Wood and I are not trying to beat you over the head with, uh, give us money. <laughs> no, it's not us that you're giving money anyways. We're not, we're not trying to beat you over the head. We're not, we don't talk about this all the time. In fact, we hardly ever talk about this. But one of the chief ways of expressing service in the life of a Christian is in giving even financially from what God has given me to serve the needs of the church so that the gospel can be proclaimed, so, the, so that the ransom that Jesus has paid can be, can be proclaimed. And this is why, I don't know if you've noticed this, but, but this is why uh, Pastor Wood has recently been helping us with these giving spotlights, like he did at the beginning of the service this morning, where we have a chance to stop and reflect. You know, Americans, we're really good at thinking about how we can get and get and get and get and get. But it's good, and Pastor Wood has been helping us to stop and slow down and think how much I have been given. And based on that, what can I give? Because that's the mark of a follower of Christ. A serving heart and a giving heart is outward focused. Not on my own needs, not on my own desires, but how can I help to meet the needs of others? So is your life characterized by prioritizing other people's needs before your own? Because that's why the Son of Man came. The Messiah came to serve and to give. The Lord of the universe is characterized by serving and giving. And is that what characterizes you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you this morning that you did come to serve and to give. Because we have experienced the benefit of that serving and of that giving. So we thank you. And we pray that you would make us desperate for you. That we would understand that nothing we have is our own anyways. So that we would come to you with empty hands desperate for your rescue day in and day out and that you would transform us into people who serve you and others and give to you and others. So would you do that, Lord, in our lives and our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen.